So 1 Samuel 26, 7 to 14. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given, into you, uh, given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did they awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? Verse 21. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have, <clears throat> I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here's the spear. O king, let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord reward every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For all, the Lord gave you into my hand, hand today. I would not put out my hand against the Lord ointment. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in my sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Good job, kids. You too, Ming. You did a good job too, buddy. See, if they can read the Bible, so can you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if we haven't met yet, um, I, I would love to meet you. I can't shake your hand today because this morning I caught the cold that's going around for the second time this season. And, um, and uh, if you'd be praying for our family, that everybody's feeling a little bit under, their, under the weather right now, but I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that I'm well enough to be here to, to worship King Jesus for who he is and what he's done, and to be blessed by you all as you sing of his praises. Um, I'm encouraged to be a part of this family here called Infusion Church. You all bless me more than, than you know. Um, we, it's, it's January, right? Is it January? It's January, and we're still in our Advent series. Why is that? Well, Advent simply means arrival. 
And it's not only about expectant waiting and preparation for the, for the celebration of the birth of our king, where we celebrate it at Christmas time. It's also about expectant waiting and preparation for his return to make everything that's wrong in the world right. We were created with a deep longing for significance, a deep longing for meaning, a deep longing for joy. That's how we were wired up when God created us. But we live in a broken world, don't we? We will live in a broken world where those things seem to be beyond our grasp. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, we believe deep down that, that this world, after trying and failing and trying and failing, over and over and over again, this world cannot fulfill those deep longings. You guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? That leads me to one conclusion. We weren't created for this world for the way that it is. We were created for a better world. And God expects his church he expects us to bless the world until the king returns to complete that blessing. Being regularly encouraged in this gospel promise that our king will return and that he will complete this blessing is the only way that we can persevere with the hope that we need to prepare for his return while we wait. He is the one who ultimately fulfills our longings for significance and meaning and joy. Amen? Now, the past few weeks, we've been looking at the Old Testament and the first kings of, of God's people, King Saul and King David. But the whole point, the whole point is for them to point us to the true king, to point us to King Jesus. The Bible from cover to cover is all about Jesus. Now, even though these are ancient historical stories, they're still relevant for us today. For example, today, we see David respond to King Saul, who is out to kill him. And when David's given an opportunity to strike back, when he has the chance to get even, he doesn't. He shows mercy. He shows forgiveness. He shows grace. I think everybody here has been hurt at one point or another. Some of us more than others, probably. Some of us worse than others. You've been attacked in different ways. So how in the world can we respond in mercy and forgiveness and grace instead of striking back at those who wrong us? Our passage shows us that if we believe that this passage points us to King Jesus and his kingdom, we'll have the power to do that. So here's what I want to do, especially if you haven't been here till now. Let me, let me start by giving you a little previously on Advent of the King. The nation of Israel wanted to be like all of the other nations, and so they demanded a king. And Saul became the first king and didn't work out so well. God had called Israel to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing, to show what life looks like in a community, among a people, when God is central to their hearts and lives. But King Saul lived for himself, preoccupied with his own power and his own name. 
So God rejects him as king and anoints David, but David has to wait to take the throne. Meanwhile, while Saul finds out about David, he feels threatened, he becomes murderous, and he puts a hit out on David. David flees to the wilderness with 600 of his loyal followers and fighters, and Saul pursues them with his powerful army. Saul receives intel regarding David's location, and he rounds up 3,000 of his best men, and they head out to capture him. But David sees where Saul's camp and warriors are one evening as they were settling in for the night. And when they all fall asleep, David and Abishai, one of David's fiercest and bravest fighters, sneak into the camp to find King Saul. And in the text that was just read this morning, we see David give Saul incredible mercy and forgiveness and grace. And this raises two important questions for us. One, how should we respond when we are wronged? And how in the world can we respond that way when we just don't want to? Because who wants to when we're wronged? So first, how to respond when we're wronged. Now look, let me start off by saying that we cannot simply look at David as an example. He's got to point us to Christ. And one way this happens is when we realize, we realize that we regularly fail the good examples that the Bible gives us. We got to see that. We got to come to grips with that. We cannot be in denial about that. And, and part of David's example here shows us ways to respond when someone wrongs us. And we see, don't get even, remember you're not the judge, and engage with love and wisdom. Don't get even, remember you're not the judge, and engage with love and wisdom. We don't do that when people wrong us. First, don't get even. David and Abishai are standing over Saul while he's asleep, right? So Abishai says to David, let's do this. We can do this right now, one strike with my spear, and Saul's done. And David says, no. Why not? Because Saul is the Lord's anointed, he says. That's mentioned several times in this passage. It says, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And then in verse 11, it says, the Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. And then in verse 23, it says, the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. In the, Lord's, in the Old Testament, the Lord's anointed it consisted of prophet, priests, and kings who were called to serve and deliver God's people. The anointing gave them a special dignity and, and respect before God. And this is why David does not harm Saul by giving Saul what he thought Saul deserved. But instead, he gives Saul dignity and respect. Now here's the truth. All of us are surrounded by Saul's. At least we have one Saul in our life, don't we? People who have hurt us. People who have wounded us. People who have treated us unfairly. How should we treat them and why? 
Now, a biblical worldview reminds us in Genesis chapter 1 that God created every human being in the image of who? In the image of God, our creator. God, when he created humankind, had given every single human being a special dignity and respect as his image bearers. It's what makes human beings unique and distinct from everything else in the creation. And this is our basis for not harming anyone, even people who wrong us by giving them what we think that they deserve, but instead treat them with dignity and respect because they're made in the image of God. Now here's what I've noticed. It's incredibly, it's the weirdest thing, but you'll know what I'm talking about. You see it all the time. It's common for religious people to forsake the biblical worldview They forsake the biblical worldview that they claim to humiliate those who don't share their biblical worldview. It is destructively ironic. Dignity and respect come from God. We cannot forsake the biblical worldview that people are created in the image of God can't forsake that to humiliate someone who doesn't share our biblical worldview. Do you see the irony in that? Do you see how common that is? On the other hand, I personally had to admit that that to stand for human rights and, and to stand for those who are mistreated, I needed to forsake a secular worldview because ultimately a secular worldview is about the strong devouring the weak. It's all about the survival of the fittest. And I realized that dignity and respect must come from God. A famous... Um, German philosopher and sociologist Jürgen Habermas, who is not a Christian, but a staunch defender of the Enlightenment and and its modern worldview, he surprised the philosophical uh, establishment when he made the case that secular reason alone cannot account for the substance of being a good human. He went on to say that science cannot determine morality or define what a good human is. Science is a divine gift to humanity. It gives us so much, and it helps us understand human life better, but it cannot give us the reason to value human life. And so if you care for people, and if you believe we have to value every human life, guess where that came from? Guess where it came from? Science can't explain that. Science doesn't offer us any answers. As far as that goes, it offers us millions of other answers. Can't answer that one. That one's critical. You know, we live in a world where people are fragmented and dehumanized by each other. So how do you even begin to address the the animosity and the indifference in our world? Christianity says that because there is a God who created human beings in his image, that we can value all human life. That is the basis upon which we care for people with dignity and respect, and we fight for justice for the oppressed. Amen? But let me tell you something. 
treating people with dignity and respect, those kind of values, they get tested when others wrong you. You could say dignity and respect for everybody until you get wronged by them, right? And you're going to have Abishais around you who say, you know what? You need to give them what they deserve. Destroy them. Get even. David doesn't listen to Abishai because he believes dignity and respect come from God. Second, under how to respond when wronged. Realize that you are not the judge. Now, listen. I do not mean that we aren't supposed to have good judgment. The Bible endorses good judgment. All right? What I do mean is that we are not the ones who condemn and determine the punishment. When David refused to kill Saul in in verse 10 uh, to Abishai, David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and, and perish. He's saying, you know what? It's God's call to make. It's not mine. He is the judge, not me. Why? Because only God has the wisdom and the authority to give people what they deserve. Our wisdom and authority is limited. When David refuses to get even, when he refuses to act as judge, jury, and executioner, you know what he's doing? He's demonstrating a deep trust in God. Vengeance is his. In fact, since vengeance is God's, that's the only reason that he doesn't need to carry it out. David knows God will take care of it. I don't have to. God is in control of all circumstances in your life and in this world. And we see this, just a a small example of it here in verse 12, where it said Saul's soldiers were were all asleep because a, a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. You know what, David? David was not depending on his own ability to sneak in and out like a ninja. He had to trust that God was in control. Now, we're not sure that David knew exactly how God was controlling the situation, and you won't know exactly how God is controlling your situation, but you can trust that he is in control. It doesn't depend on you, thank God. It doesn't depend on me, thank God. You can rest in that. Hebrews 1.11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And one last thought on this, on this. As heroic as David seems in stories like these, as amazing as he is with, with mercy here, even though he was known to be a man after God's own heart, a great example that he sometimes is, he is still a flawed sinner who needs a perfect king to save him. That king is the one we should be looking to. Not David just to be our example. 
See, the whole Bible is meant to point to Christ. In fact, that's why the Bible tells us about David's covetous desires. His, his, his just, just outlandish, just arrogant adultery. And then his murder of, of her husband and the vengeance that we see David takes at times. David needed a king who would save him. God's people needed a king who could save them because it wasn't going to be David. They needed a perfect king. None of the prophets, priests, or kings in the Bible could save themselves or God's people. They aren't simply there to be good examples. They're primarily there to point us to the greatest prophet, priest, and king who saves us all and makes all things new. point of scripture contains good examples that can be valuable and give us wisdom and direction. But the main point of scripture is not about good examples. It's about a great God who loves us and, and, and saves us despite our inconsistencies and our imperfect faith. That's what the Bible's about. And then Third, under how to respond when wronged. Engage with wisdom and love. David and, <laughs> David and Abishai risk their lives to get to Saul. Saul would be in the middle of this, of this camp and heavily protected. Imagine David and Abishai, you know, tip towing through the sleeping warriors. Abishai steps on his on it on a stick. I almost said it steps on a snack, but that wouldn't make sense. Abishai steps on a stick, and then it snaps. And then the eye of one of the warriors opens up, sees them, sounds the alarm, and it's all over for them, right? I mean, the risks were, were pretty high. They risk their lives to get to Saul. They find him. He's sleeping. Everybody else is asleep. They've gotten in undetected. They're going to get out undetected because Abishai says, you know, I can take them out just with, with one strike of my spear. Abishai's like, he's like, carpe diem, let's kill him. And so David says, No. David grabs a spear and a jug of water and says, now we can go. That's it? That's, that's the mission? That, that, that's why we risked our lives for that? We've got spears and jugs of water back at our camp all day long. David says, yep. And here's why. Oh, David is still going after Saul but not the way that Saul is going after him. It's not out of vindictiveness. It's not out of vengeance. He's going after Saul's heart. After he takes a water jug and spear, when he was off at a safe distance, he yells toward the camp, wakes everybody up, and engages Saul with love and wisdom. 
We didn't read the middle section when Saul wakes up and hears David's voice and Saul calls back and says, is that you, my son, David? And David responds with love. He starts by saying, it is my voice, my, my king, or my lord, O oh king. And I, I think most of us, well, maybe it's just me. I'll speak for myself. I'd be tempted to say, don't you call me son, old man. I'm not your son. I know your game, and the only reason I didn't kill you is so that you would live in fear knowing I could, and it just might be the next time you fall asleep, so sweet dreams. <laughs> and that's why I'm not in the Bible. David lovingly says in verse 23, O king, the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, your life was precious this day in my sight. You know, he not only responds with love, but he also responds with wisdom. When Saul says in verse 21, Saul says, I've sinned. Return, my son, for I will no more do you harm. And David says, nope, I don't think so. And then it says, I'll just read it from here. David says, nope, here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. Like you send one of your guys over here and I'll return your spear and your, your water. <laughs> David lovingly shows mercy, but he's not naive or foolish. Now, here's what's a little tricky. And you're going to need, this is why we need the community of God to help us guard our own hearts and discern our own hearts. Because sometimes, a lot of times, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know it, right? So we need community to see our blind spots, and here's why. Sometimes loving a person means keeping a distance to prevent that person from ongoing sin and harm against you. Okay. Now we have to be careful to play that card because we just might want to do it because we, we don't want to gauge in the reconciliation process, but it's legitimate. David doesn't avoid Saul. He engages him, not with violence, but with love and wisdom. Again, let's, let's just acknowledge right here that we do not live up to this example. When people wrong us, hurt us, we either avoid and harbor grudges and bitterness in our hearts, or we confront them in a way that makes that person feel horrible and small. David goes to a lot of trouble to confront Saul, but to pursue Saul's heart. You know, I, I, I heard someone say, if you confront people to lovingly show them what's wrong, they may not change. But if you confront them out of vindictiveness and anger, they will never change. So David does provide a good example here, but that's not enough. 
I can't end the message. If you know me at all, I can't end the message right here. A good example doesn't give us the power we need to live this way. It's not enough to say, don't get even, remember you're not the judge, and engage with wisdom and love. Amen? You're dismissed. It can't happen. So, so much teaching in Christian circles go. And then they stop short of the power to live that way. So how do we get the power to respond in the ways that we're talking about here? This is my last section. How do we get the power to respond this way when we've been wronged? One of the key phrases in this passage is the Lord's anointed. Remember in the Old Testament, the Lord's anointed were prophets, priests, and kings who were given special dignity and respect for the purpose of serving and, de- and delivering God's people. None of them could ultimately deliver God's people and fully establish the kingdom of God to bless the world by making everything that's wrong right. In the New Testament, finally, as we just celebrated, the true king was born. The one who is truly the Lord's anointed, who does not serve himself, but serves his people. People who wronged him, people who were against him, people who were indifferent to him, people who hated him, people like us, but were loved by him and received his mercy and therefore forgiveness and reconciliation. And not just at the risk of his life, but at the cost of of his life, a life so valuable it brings redemption to the world. He is Christ the King. Christ means the Lord's anointed. That's what Christ means. Another word for it is Messiah. And on the cross, Christ the King demonstrates his power and his authority to forgive and reconcile us to God out of sheer mercy and grace. He took the judgment that we deserved so that we could get the blessing he deserved, which is communion with the Lord. So the power of God to live this way simply is the gospel. And to the extent, this is key, you'll hear it when I preach every now and then, a key phrase is, to the extent that. Because I want to show you how this plays out in your life, here and now. To the extent that we believe that Jesus sacrificed to give mercy, forgiveness, and grace to us, to that same extent, we will sacrifice and give mercy and forgiveness and grace towards others. All of us have been wronged in different ways, and it's not over. There's more of that in your future. So say it happened recently. Maybe it's a level one or two offense, and you're nursing a grudge. It's not big, but it's there. Maybe others of you have suffered a level nine or ten offense with deep wounds and deep pain. Wherever you are, how can you and I experience the freedom and the power of the gospel by extending grace, mercy, and forgiveness? You need to trust Jesus as your king. 
when Jesus is your king and you trust him to be the one with the authority and the power to forgive you and to show mercy to you, then you will show forgiveness and mercy to others. See, the gospel humbles us to empower us to forgive. We, we cannot forgive people when we have a superiority complex, when we feel superior or when we act superior towards other people. We won't be able to forgive them. But the gospel humbles us and teaches us that we are sinners saved by grace, that, that we are capable, yes, we are capable of the very same thing that others have done to us. If you think otherwise, it is to be self-righteously bitter and that pain will destroy you. It'll destroy you. The gospel humbles us to forgive. Secondly, the gospel frees us to forgive. You know, see, the reason it's so hard for us to forgive those who wrong us is because they've taken something from us. But if you realize that you have the incredible approval and delight of God in Jesus if you grasp the, the, the amazing emotional and spiritual wealth in Jesus that can never, ever be taken away from you, then you have the freedom to forgive. This is how God advances Jesus' kingdom in the world. While we wait and prepare for his return. King Jesus is so merciful to us. And so we fix our eyes on the merciful one who comes to us to bring us his mercy, forgiveness, and grace. And then we share his mercy, forgiveness, and grace in word and deed with the world. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me?